0: It's been another jam-packed week in geopolitics, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Wake Up Joe, Diplomacy's Here edition of Intrigue Explained. With me, just like last week, is Dmitry Grosbinsky, the director of the wonderful trade negotiations platform, uh, Explained Trade morning, Dimitri, or rather afternoon, because you're obviously in Europe and I promise I'll get the time zones correct one day, but afternoon. Good morning, rise and shine, John. I hope you've been up for what is about, what, eight, nine hours by now, Dimitri, but I'll I'll leave that.
1: I'm a consultant. I work when I need to. Um, And of course, we have Helen
0: Zhang, my co-founder at International Intrigue with us. And now, Helen, that's a background I don't recognize. Where are you?
2: I am in Cape Town, South Africa, South Africa. Actually,
0: South Africa, what's your impression? I've I've never been, that was, everyone has their COVID story about like the trip that was booked and my March 25, uh, 2020 trip was to Cape town and I've never been, and I'd love to go. What's the impressions?
2: Oh, John, I, I think you would love it. I mean, I mean, it's terrible. Uh, no, I mean, seriously, it's been, one thing I will say is that the South Africans have a very different idea of what moderate to easy hikes look like compared to us or just us elderly oh, millennials. Dear. I tried to scale Table Mountain and nearly died in the process. So that's one impression. Secondly, great wineries around here. I think there's just good produce around Cape Town. But I think, look, if we're being honest, like the, the inequality here is pretty stark. And I think that's something that for a lot of maybe Australians when we grow up, we're like, oh yeah, beach is the same. And like speaking English in a Commonwealth country, the same. But then we, I think the, the stark inequalities here that you see has been pretty confronting.
1: We need to get you back to San Francisco where you'll never see any inequality.
2: Correct, yeah. That's away. how they've all been swept away for the she-Biden for upco- meetings.
0: What a segue. What a segue, <laughs> yeah. Good to well, Exactly. I am the host of today's podcast. I'm John Fowler, the co-founder with International Intrigue, and the three of us are all former Australian diplomats, which, Helen, that brings me exactly to your segue, your wonderful segue. This week we're going to be talking about the Xi-Biden meeting in San Francisco on the kind of margins or sidelines of APEC. So why don't I just spend a couple of seconds setting that up for folks who haven't picked up a newspaper over the last couple of days. So firstly, yeah, well, I mean, she met Biden in San Francisco on Wednesday evening, or Wednesday afternoon, Eastern American time. Of course, it was morning in San Francisco. He, She actually had a fairly full schedule on the Wednesday, he then chatted to US business elite, as I think it's been... Widely term, uh, you know, folks like Musk and and, and Edo, Ray Dalio back. from exactly Ray Dalio from Bridgewater and all these kinds of movers and shakers. The takeaway from the meeting with the presidents Biden and Xi was that they made real progress. Um, I've got two quotes here. Xi Jinping said that for two large countries like China and the United States, turning their back on each other is not an option. Planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed, and one country's success is an opportunity for the other. Uh, And Biden said, we have the responsibility to our people and the world to work together when we see it in our interest to do so. Critical global challenges we face from climate change to counter narcotics to artificial intelligence demand our joint efforts. So the vibe I think overall was, hey, don't look at all the stuff that we've been saying for the last 12, (laughs) 18, 24 months, but this meeting for a couple of hours is. Everything's, everything's <laughs> back to being tickety-boo. Helen, what was the immediate impressions after Rena the, the, the kind of uh, readout of the meeting?
2: Well, I think we had reported on this in Intrigue as well, which was that, you know, the results kind of just confused a lot of the Chinese quote-unquote netizens or Chinese readers who were like, hang on a second, are we supposed to hate the U.S. or love the U.S. now? Are we besties again? What is the M.O.? You know, so I think it's, it was very confusing for some. But I do think that by and large, it's been from a certainly Western media perspective in a really successful summit, rattling off really quickly some of the useful results that they've had, including... Starting direct military-to-military military contacts again or having that communication so that, you know, planes don't go down due to conflicts some um, agreement to actually discuss the AI, what we discussed last week, you know, starting from Bletchley, but sort of moving on to the future of that. As well as, I think, very importantly, the fentanyl stuff, right, and curbing the U.S. Um, opioid crisis. And most importantly, or for a lot of people, leading up to COP28, the future of climate change and what the two countries can do. Now, those are the sort of big ticket things, but I really think there's also stuff like, you know, the lower stuff, which is people to people relations. That was really stressed from Xi or Xi diplomacy as the Chinese media have termed it. Um, And starting, you know, more exchanges from the U.S. to China, which had really diminished. I think at one point there was only 400 American students in China and also restarting a lot more um, flight routes from the U.S. to China. So those are the sort of lower ticket things. But John, I think what's been interesting for me is actually seeing how positively the Chinese language media has been covering this, Mm. right? All the language that they use has been sort of, you know, the future of U.S. China is positive and bright uh, and etc. Insert other sort of Tang Dynasty kind of poetry, flowery language, which is really surprising to me. What did you think, John?
0: Well, it's not going to surprise you, again, as our resident contrarian here that a look, I don't think I'm a China hawk per se, but I just think all of this is window dressing. I read a good quote somewhere, might have been the New York Times, that a professor was interviewed, a Chinese professor in China was interviewed about the quick about face that Chinese propaganda has kind of under, undergone. And I think that's important. It's like Chinese, Chinese media is not kind of free. So it is state media, it is propaganda, it is directed from the top. And it's remarkable how quickly they changed from pretty anti-US stuff. Recently, as you know, Spy Balloon was, Dimitri and I covered the Spy Balloon ad nauseum for about a month back in February and March. That's only six-ish months ago. And the turnaround from what they were saying then to now is kind of remarkable. But this professor was quoted saying, Oh yeah, but this kind of propaganda isn't designed to change the Chinese minds, it's designed to butter up the target, the US. It's designed to create an an environment for the meeting that makes everyone feel good and 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 you know, warm and and cuddly. So I think I think that was my takeaway of the Chinese media stuff. Dimitri, sitting over in Europe, is it dominating the papers like it is in the US and presumably is in
1: China? Not as much. Describing the European relationship with the US and China. I was trying to come up with an analogy for it. And the best one I can do is if there was a family-owned business and the parents were going through a divorce that hasn't quite turned messy yet, but is clearly trending in that direction, and the kids are sitting there watching it going, this could get so bad. And that's how Europe looks at the US and China, in that they have this strategic (laughs) relationship with the US. They are hugely dependent on an economically stable china that is continuing to grow and consume products and house their factories and they're just watching these two going like we need you to stay chill but we're not sure you will (laughs) and so a lot of the reporting in europe at the moment is like well they got together and no one died and we managed to avoid a big fight and maybe they're talking to one another again maybe we'll be able to get through christmas it is very much a risk mitigation like Ah, uh, uh, framework that like you, you whether you read De Spiegel, whether you read like Le Monde, you can look at all of them. It's all very much like we dropped the grenade and it didn't explode. We get to live another week.
0: To tease that analogy out further, is this is this the point where they've had their breakup? They realize they can't really, you know, be in the same room for very long periods of time. But for the sake of the kids, we have to get together and figure out a way to make.
1: Oh, no. Like we're neither along. of them are staying together for the kids, to be very clear. It's just that the <laughs> business, they can't walk away from the business. Maybe it's like, you know, a dentist and oral hygienist that they can't break up. So they're staying together for f- the business. The kids are just like, the kids know neither side genuinely cares about them in this.
0: Fair enough. I, Helen, you, you seem to have a pretty good grasp on the announceables. I'm, I must admit, every time I read these, long documents from my just, and particularly when I don't fundamentally believe any of them, which is my general position on this meeting. But why don't you dig down particularly into two things? You mentioned them at the start, two things I think you know pretty, pre, you know, quite a lot about AI and climate. Cause I think those are the kinds of things that didn't get a ton of coverage on on AI, Xi Jinping and, and Biden agreed to prohibit its use in things like automated weapons systems, drones, this kind of stuff, um, and nuclear command. I mean, I, I'll i be honest, the use of AI in nuclear weapons and nuclear command was something I hadn't actually even thought about. It makes sense, but I hadn't even thought about it. So that was a whole new sphere of worries that are going to keep me up at <laughs> night now because.
2: Yeah, new fear unlocked.
0: <laughs> exactly. Would you like to
1: play a game, John? I would not like to play a game, Dimitri. <laughs>
0: But on climate, the lead up to COP is kind of important here. So do you want to, I don't know, take it where you will?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, on the AI stuff, yeah, that that stuff is kind of terrifying. But I think that that is the, pretty much the lowest hanging fruit they can all agree on, like that we don't like nuclear weapons and we don't want robots to kind of be in charge of the nuclear codes, right? So I think that's which, that's pretty which much- Which is why
0: it's so important for the military to talk to each other, right? Like that. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, or having like a deconfliction line to be like, "Hey buddy, I'm buzzing I'm buzzing you with my, you know, whatever F-16 jet. We're just flying by. We're not trying to shoot you da. Let let's just like everybody calm down." Yeah. I remember actually when I, I had served in Israel, the Russians and the Israelis had a deconfliction line during the Syrian civil war, and that actually had so successfully avoided the misses and potential sort of Syrian arena conflict back then. So like that and that was only like one really tiny bit of air traffic, right? So compared to where over the Taiwan Strait or over the Indo-Pacific region, how many chances there might be of future flare-ups So have that military deconfliction or communication channel, at least somebody out at the end of that line answering is a really, really good thing. So that, that's all I say on that. On the climate stuff, look, I think for both these countries, it's sort of like a preamble leading into the COP, you know, the climate talks in Dubai later this month. So the two big things that they had really agreed on was China had agreed to a a really high high target, uh, and they they both agreed to work on methane and reducing plastic pollution. So reducing methane, reducing plastics uh, pollution, which I think is a is a really good things. But of course, those are kind of just what, what we call like the trimmings around the the turkey or inserts of the Thanksgiving meat of choice, um, because they didn't really talk about how to phase out fossil fuels, right? So that's kind of really at the The meat of it, but I think at least the fact that they had this discussion, which you know, curbing methane is actually still a major source of global emission, this is this is at least a starting point. I feel like I say that in every podcast so far, it's a starting point. But so much of diplomacy sometimes is.
0: I think it's really instructive that that's the kind of takeaway because it requires people to say, you know, a it's a it's a reflection of the U.S.-China relationship that we're happy to have starting points you know, even having them is important, but also in my in my estimation that we've really lowered our expectations too far on this kind of stuff like we kind oh. of we kind of say, oh, they've agreed to agree to agree to an agreement in the future that they might talk about having an agreement about an agreement and we're like, oh, it's a starting point. um you know I think the, the thing that's dominating the news in the us at least because fentanyl has, I mean, the, the the statistics, which we don't have to go into here, are just horrific on the opioid crisis in America. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff is produced in China, or at least the ingredients that go into making it is produced in China. Now, whether you think that's a state-driven policy or not is kind of depending on how far you move along the conspiracy theorem spectrum. But the media is saying, oh, you know, they, China has agreed to curb fentanyl. It's not what they agreed to. They agreed to set up a working group to discuss how they might approach attacking it. Let's be real that China, if China wants to stop this stuff, they can basically do it. Openly. Very easily. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's I, I just can't help feeling every time we have these big meetings um, and Dimitri, you're the trade expert. So you sit in negotiations more than anybody I've ever met. Um, and I don't know whether they are more substantive because they're kind of the experts in the room or whether they are just like this, but I just feel like it's kind of nothing's going to get done. China's promising to do things in the future if you do things now. America's like, well, okay, we'll do that because we actually need your help. But, like, nothing actually gets done. And talking becomes the only thing that people like us have to hang on to be like, well, at least they're talking. That's a good thing. I don't know. Any views on that, Dimitri?
1: I mean, I fall somewhere between the two of you in terms of optimism. The U.S. and China, this is not their first time at the dance. They're familiar with one another's approaches. I think... The Chinese, even beginning a working group on fentanyl, firstly, helps Biden out quite a bit. It's a, it's a great talking point for Biden. heading Politically, into, you made it. He- Politically. But also, I think, gives the Chinese the option and a mechanism by which they can continue to do the U.S. favours moving into the future, give the U.S. things that the U.S. wants without touching on their core interests through an established mechanism without making what is seen as an additional concession. I think for the Chinese, it is always really important not for there, for there not to be a perception that they have been arm-twisted into something, and yeah. instead for it to be like, oh, two equals met, discussed areas of common concern, and without bullying one another, we have come to a path forward. And I'm talking to two China experts, so slap me if this is sort of completely insane, but that that's sort of my take. So I was sort of heartened by that. I would also say, and I think this goes back to your earlier points about why the conversation suddenly changed, China just is not feeling as confident, especially when it comes to its economy, and is Mm -hmm. a lot hungrier for US investments than it was in the past, which means that the US has, I don't know if it's direct leverage, but certainly the Chinese now have a strong incentive to get a little bit more into the US good books to send a signal to markets that hey, we're collaborating, the world's not gonna end, the US isn't gonna shut down all trade from China, you can come back into our markets. And so I'm a little bit more optimistic than than you are, John, but that's probably not surprising to any of our listeners.
2: That that's most people <laughs> dim.
0: Yeah. Well that's fair. I, th- I think that's a great time for me to ask you, Helen. Like the, why, what, like why did this happen now? Dimitri's kind of touched on some of the reasons. China probably, if not needs the US, probably needs the US not to be on its ass, down its throat every other second, You know, banning chips and doing all this kind of stuff. But what, what's in it for China in your view, Helen? And what's in it for the US, I guess, too?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think she just really wanted a trip to San Francisco, you know? He, he, it was like, ironically, I think it was the first place that he had visited back in the day when he first got to the US in 1985. Oh, is that true? So, yeah, that's right. On his US tour, he first landed in the port of San Francisco and had a really famous picture taken uh, on the Marin side of the county. There was a photo of Biden showing a photo of she to himself and saying, Do you know this chap? And she was like, Yeah, I mean, it's me, like, obviously from <laughs> 1985. Like, what are we doing here, you know? That's how, that's how I imagine the conversation went down. But anyway, the point is, I think she's doing this for a few things, right? I think he he's wants to sort of project Chinese power at that international multilateral level again. He has really been missing from inaction from a lot of the big international conferences, which I think we had said it intrigued that APEC is like one of the least sexy ones, right? So the more sexy ones, I guess, are like the Ungers, the G7s, and he's not been at all of them, right? So I think there's an element of wanting to be there and just projecting you're shaking your head.
0: Well, I'm just—it's a sliding scale. If Unger isn't the sexy level. I was there in September, and boy, if that's—if that's if sexy that's I know, the I know. But
2: look, gets. I we're, think we're, 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 it's you're not—you're not the measure of what determines what Pixie, right? I don't Fair think enough. we're the also right like, to do that.
1: If if you're like a if you're like a 20-year-old finishing their politi- their international relations degree, you dream of representing your oh, country. Unger, you're not like, and then you I'm speak to go John, to an APEC <laughs> Asia region's funds passport <laughs> management committee meeting which for the record, I have done and it is cool and you are all wrong, young people. It is the young people who are out of touch.
2: Right, so (laughs) APEC, that's where you want to be. So look, that's the first thing. And I think the second thing is obviously what Dimitri has said. I really agree with that, right? In that China needs to sort of show a quick win, quote unquote win on its domestic, political and economic rung. And so meeting with Biden is something that they can flex back to their domestic audiences. And then the third point, I think, which I find really interesting is also this outreach to the diaspora community, the Chinese diaspora community, which the United Front, which is a sort of an extension of China's security industry, has been really active in that region in trying to reach out and influence the huge numbers of overseas Chinese, whether they're born in the US or sort of second, first generation US, in influencing them with CCP sort of agenda. So I think that's also part of the public diplomacy as well in capturing that audience.
0: That's a great, that last point's a great point. Now, you know, I, I obviously don't answer this if you're not comfortable. But when our, our, the Australian prime minister went to China recently, it was obviously a fairly big charm offensive, maybe not as big as this one, but similar. Did your, did your parents in Sydney get kind of messages and messaging from their Chinese diaspora to be like, yay, this is a great thing? Or was, they, was it quite su- like, you know, quiet?
2: Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Of course. I think this is, it's always, you know, this tour de force of kind of, like it was saying when Modi came to Australia, right? The Indian prime minister, the Indian diaspora came out in full force, right? I think part of the sort of heads of states coming to diaspora communities abroad is kind of mobilizing them and getting them out to either um, sort of showcase their achievements in that home country or to sort of support the, the motherland, so to speak. So I think, yes, my parents. Mm definitely got the the call up to sort of celebrate the sort of rekindling of ties between Australia and China. And I can imagine somewhere as symbolic as San Francisco, which is, you know, the oldest Chinatown in the world, in the Western Hemisphere at least, um, with a huge history of Chinese immigrants building that city, having Xi Jinping there speak is quite significant.
0: Yeah. And it's big for that community too, because obviously during COVID, there was a lot of anti- Asian hate in San Francisco, right? Yeah, there was a they had yeah. a real problem with that that racial. Um, oh yeah, absolutely, in San Francisco. So this is like a big, a big. Oh, I don't want to say a, a, like a, a boon to them, but like it, it'll probably yes. help them feel acknowledged and you know like they belong in a in a city after a period of not feeling like that. Maybe.
2: Yeah, I mean, particularly right now, with a lot of Chinese students who are studying STEM subjects in the US, really feeling the bite, right? Really feeling the crunch of like either not being welcome in their PhD programs or not getting jobs in big tech firms because of that suspicion. And um, so look, my only relevance or like really relation to this is uh, when I was in the US during COVID, people used to cross like change aisles when I was walking down the aisle in supermarkets at the height of COVID, right? So I think if I experience it, I can't imagine what folks who are actually yeah. working in the STEM areas that are really sensitive and must be feeling right now. So mm. this is, I think, you know, some support for them. Um, and the other thing is, you know, Xi Jinping might just want to be there to to check out all the great restaurants in San Francisco as well and eat some dumplings. He's dumpling well, diplomacy. I, you remember that, or is a bun diplomacy?
0: I, <laughs> I do. I do remember dumpling diplomacy. But I do know yeah. also that at this remarkable compound that they met at, I think it's called.
2: Oh yeah, that's a fancy it's name.
0: Yeah, it's like an ancient, like an ancient. I say ancient, ancient for America. A couple, like maybe a hundred years old. Um, kind of you know gilded age estate in San Francisco that just looked stunning, but. They fed the most, I mean, the most white meal that you could possibly feed. It was like, it was like, chi- it was like <laughs> a seared chicken breast on a bed of asparagus chips with, you know, a side of, a side of quinoa. And I was just kind of like, I mean, I really feel like Xi Jinping must, must have been like, what is this slop? Where, where are my dumplings? Where are my where, Where's my delicious, you know. You know <laughs> Chinese food. Hong roll and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but but more seriously, I think I think Dimitri, you raised a good point about why China wants this now. And I, I I was on Twitter or X or whatever. I'm gonna every week I'm not gonna know what to call that damn bloody platform. But th- there's a Twitter account called Shanghai Strategist, and basically it kind of tweets on risk indices in in the Asia Pacific with a focus on China. And they had a fairly hysterical tweet, or I should say hyperbolic tweet, about how like the risk the risk premium on China has plummeted because. We had the news of Taiwan's opposition parties
2: teaming oh, yeah. up
0: to kind of, you know, arguably make that race a bit more competitive and a bit more pro-Beijing. And then you have the news of the Xi-Biden meeting. And and I think that gets to a point that China is really struggling economically now. You mentioned this. Its capital outflows are huge. It's real, like Western slash international business are really waking up to the idea that China's not a place that you can rely on the normal mm-hmm. things that businesses want, you know, policy certainty rule of law these kinds of things so i and I, again reading again i'm cynical i know but reading the 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 comments made after the or xi jinping's opening comments in the business forum uh, on wednesday night i just it was just platitudes of like china's a friend we're going to help you we're a huge market and i it's very clearly china needs help on this they need to keep foreign capital but like who really believes that They're going to change their ways when it comes to loosening the economic reins, loosening the public security reins, loosening
1: the, all the rules. So I think there are two risks that the Chinese are trying to manage vis-a-vis investor perception. One is how the Chinese government treats economic players within their market. The second is the threat of external barriers to Chinese trade and firms based or producing in China. And those are two distinct risks. Because one of them is like, is the Chinese government going to be going to be mean to you? The other one is, is the US going to start slapping sanctions on your products, getting in the way of you moving staff around, um, putting in place national security based barriers, uh, insisting that you, you can't get certain components. And those are two distinct risks that investors are looking at. And I think this meeting was probably more about signaling that at the very least china is going to lean out of pushing the us into doing more of that so i think that that was one one signal in terms of what they can do domestically listen i'm i you, you both would be far more qualified to comment on this my sense is that it is a dial that china can turn left and right you know 5 6 years ago i think the perception among businesses was that you can do business in China, as long as you don't come out with a sort of anti-human rights statement, you can navigate those barriers and you can make money in China. Since then, especially in sort of the last couple of years, there was a sense that the focus of the CCP went from economic development to local stability, to retaking control, to curbing tall poppies in the business community, um, to sort of getting the big tech guys out under control. If they dial that back by 15 degrees, I don't know whether, given the size of the Chinese market, given their ability to subsidize, given their ability to play favorites, whether they might be able to lure some of that focus back, because God, does business have short memories sometimes on this geostrategic Mm. stuff. Being a business owner is about being an optimist. And so I can imagine perhaps they're also thinking, maybe we can get not all of it. But maybe we can get some of it.
0: Yeah, and I think C- CEOs think in in quarterly results, right? And you know, a couple of you got to make make hay while the sun shines. And if you get a couple of years of access to the China market, you know, you probably make decisions that aren't structurally hard to unpick because you're probably aware that China's going to go back in a more unfriendly mode in the near future. But you're like, well, hey, we'll we'll have a light footprint there. We'll make money, and when things turn again, we'll jump out again. Which I mean, that's how you got to run businesses, right? It it feels frustrating to those of us in the diplomacy game who work so hard to kind of raise these risks. I mean, my, one of my experiences in Shanghai was just how much we had to engage with Australian businesses of all of all sorts Yeah. just kind of be like, hey, hey, come on, come on, like you can't pull your head in. I remember one. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember one company being like, oh, we've just signed a joint venture with a comp- uh, with a with a Chinese company, um, and it's gone badly, but we'll we're, we're going to sue them in the of Supreme Court, and I was like, what what are you talking about? What do you mean you're going to sue them in Nanjing Supreme Court? You can't just, <laughs> this isn't Australia. Like, I mean, fill your boots, but I'll tell you what the decision's going to be right now. Um, so, I mean, it was a very frustrating thing in Shanghai, but, you know, also if I was running a business that had a huge exposure to China and there was an opportunity over the next couple of years to make a ton of money, well, you've got to do it,
2: right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You've got love sister yeah. sell, and, right?
1: And actually that's, that's one of the things we haven't mentioned this quite recently The first very large bulk, I think it was agricultural commodity order since like the Trump era was put in by Chinese companies for U.S. commodities. I saw that rate. So there is, there's certainly money to be made. And if I was a business and I was sitting there looking at this relationship and I wasn't in a particularly exposed sector. So if I wasn't making like drone components and making something fairly innocuous, I can see the temptation to go. If this goes really far south, like military invasion of Taiwan and preemptive strike on the Sixth Fleet level bad, then the whole world economy is going to dust. It doesn't matter what, like, no amount of supply chain integration and being cautious now will protect my business if things in that region go completely to hell, whereas sure. if... whereas. If that doesn't happen, I can make a ton of money, and I'm not going to be on the pointy end of more minor escalations. I, see I think that that's temptation. right,
0: except except for the fact that I think the reality bad case scenario is kind of what happened to to Bain and and, and other consulting groups in May, June, and July of this year, where where they got raided by the Chinese Pub, public security bureau, which you know they they're no joke. And I think that's the risk of going back. And it's, I, I completely agree that the, the catastrophic situation is like well we're not going to care about our our christmas widgets if if taiwan's on fire but it's more that anyone doing business there really needs to in my view have an attitude of this is a limb that is not going to be existential if we have to sever it you know we'll make some yeah. money but it's it it'll be just a flesh wound to the company and i think that i think i have some hope that western businesses or You know, again, international businesses have kind of figured that bit out over the last, you know, eight to 10 years. I mean, previously they were all in, it was core to their strategy. Helen, we had Australian companies like Blackmore's and, and, you know, our our law firms, right, one that I used to work with,
2: yeah.
0: Law firms look at China as like, hey, we are really struggling to grow. This is our, this is our silver bullet. And I think now it's going to be much more like, yeah, it can never really be core because it's so fickle. Does that, does that feel right?
2: I think it feels absolutely right, and if you and I think I will caveat that with saying that American companies are leading the charge there, right? I think they they're the most kind of skeptical when it comes to the longevity and the stability of doing business in China, and you see that through AmCham, right? So anecdotally, I've had folks who who were in AmCham in Beijing tell me that in their recent visit there, everyone who's with Amsham in Beijing has now pulled out. Either they, you know, mm. still exist, but they don't live in Beijing. You know, they live in like Hainan or they live in uh, Taiwan. Some live in uh, in Japan or Korea, but nobody is actually in Beijing because they know that doing business in the mainland is going to be really challenging. And so for mm. big consultancy firms, which are providing advice internally and externally to their clients, the, the line is just so that, you know, you can't, you shouldn't be banking all of your, your future on on China. And I think the second indicator is sort of what happens to a lot of the offshore RMB that Hong Kong is holding, right? Like once that sort of goes, and we've seen a lot of that go to Singapore already, then I think that just sort of correlates with the diminishing um, value of of doing business in China for Western companies, particularly US yeah. companies. I will differentiate. I, I do think US companies are very, very sensitive to that.
1: But can I add one more thing, John? Just because... Previously, I said that there were sort of two risks that companies were thinking about, sort of domestic Chinese political risk and international political risk. What I should have said is that there is a third. And one thing that has changed is that China, I mean, I know Chinese economic statistics are are not entirely reliable, but China is (laughs) not growing nearly as fast as it was. Even if it wasn't previously growing as fast as it said it was, it was still absolutely booming. And there was this sense that, like, there's going to be a huge Chinese middle class. It's going to be super wealthy. There's so much money to be made. Go, 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 go. Right now, they're sitting at, I think I read, 20% urban unemployment. They're sitting, oh, FDIs yeah. dried up. The constructions, like, there, there seems to be one story every two weeks. Ghost towns, but the construction sector kind of having to do all of these weird restructurings. Yeah. yeah. And, like, there, is, there is one story a month. About how the Chinese market is about to collapse, and there has been, I think, since I was about four. So yes. I never, I never know how much, how much the house of cards is a house of cards. But I certainly think businesses looking at it now are no longer. Even if, even if there were no geopolitical risk, and even if the Chinese government were being a lot more business friendly, I think the economic pull factors aren't as strong as they were when you were when you were opposed even
0: i I completely agree with that dimitri you touched on it just very briefly before um, and maybe helen you have some views on this but what what does the us get out of this meeting dimitri you mentioned domestic politics in the us but what what else why why the us felt to me like it was you know it didn't was projecting that like we don't need china we're going to not decouple but de-risk we're going to do all the chip bans why do they what's what's in it for them to kind of put a floor under the relationship
1: I would, I think, if I were advising Biden, and this is what I, I imagine his, his advisors are telling, I would say that all, wake up, Joe. God, that's a, that's a title for the episode. Wake up, Joe. G's coming. <laughs> Correct. Let's, let's
2: go with that. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> as we get, as we get cancelled by the fifteen Joe Biden voters apparently left in the U.S. <laughs> no, I think, I think if I were, if I were his advisors, I'd be telling him to look at a couple. First, ah, uh, the U.S. and China are in a weird place where it is very clear that the relationship is antagonistic and could be headed in a really bad direction, but they're very clearly not there yet. So there has to be a dialogue. Things like not having military-to-military communication when you are overwhelmingly the most powerful militaries on Earth with huge stockpiles of nuclear weapons who are literally buzzing one another's planes in the Taiwan Strait is Mm -hmm. insanely dangerous and unsustainable. Yeah, Going to war... Because of irreconcilable differences would be horrific. Going to war because somebody failed to make a phone call because you're not speaking to each other is horrific and really dumb. So yeah. there are a whole so so there are a whole bunch of areas like that where it's just it is just insane not to be talking. First. Yeah. Second of all, with the Chinese in a, I don't want to say a weakened position, but at least not in the same feeling of overwhelming confidence that they had in 2021, there is an opportunity to have that meeting without 50 preconditions. You've talked, to, you've talked me through this before, John. The, the CCP loves nothing more than to have a meeting, but then set like five substantive preconditions for the meeting where you've made like eight concessions before you get there. And then the Chinese concession is like, I will eat your horrible Western food, your Brussels sprouts, and we will have a photo op. And that will be what yeah. I did, but in exchange for that, Nancy Pelosi has to give up her passport so she can never go to Taiwan again, or something like yeah. that's the that's Chinese. Very true. I don't think I don't think the Chinese can pull that at the moment. I think it that's a, I think feels, that's a great observation.
2: Yeah, it's a great observation, Dim. I sorry, go ahead, finish.
1: No, you can all keep calling me great. I'm happy to break for that. So now is a good moment to meet. I think that's second. Thirdly, I think there are domestic political reasons. Because the relationship is sensitive, but not so sensitive, Joe Biden can beat up on Xi a little bit. You know, uh, there's that the report, a reporter asked him, Do you still think Xi's a dictator? And Biden's like, Yeah. So he gets to push Xi a bit, which will play reasonably well in the press. He can get some concessions on areas like fentanyl, which for those who don't know what fentanyl is, it's horrific. Like it's a hundred awesome. times yeah. more potent than morphine. Is destroying yeah. communities. Something so, being like 70%
0: able... of all overdoses in America now.
2: Are I fentanyl. I mean, that, and That
0: that, that, that yeah. stat might not be right on the money, but it's something crazy it like is. that. It is. It's
2: over 50%. 70%. And it's like very yeah. easy to kind of lead to death because you can just like touch it, touch surfaces that had sent fentanyl and result in very Six. serious cardiac arrest. Sorry, Dean. we keep interrupting?
1: No, no, no. This is, you can't overstate how horrible this stuff is, right? Yeah. And you need right. Chinese cooperation to deal with. There is simply, uh-huh. you know, we, we, have, we have tried to curb drug imports from other places. You cannot do it with a purely at the border approach. Clearly, you need the Chinese. You need the Chinese on climate change. So I think the U.S. approach was like, this is the lowest cost way to harvest what we can from a really contentious relationship without sacrificing anything we deeply care about. And I would also add, Joe Biden is fundamentally a conciliatory guy. He, he thinks there is value in talking to people. And that's why he's been in the Senate for roughly 400 years. He likes getting into a room. He likes sitting down with someone and going, let's talk.
2: Yeah. I will add to that one thing, I think. Sorry, John, very quickly. In addition to Dim's point about, like, we don't want a war because somebody was left on red, right? I want to say that one thing else is that Joe's got very domestic political considerations as well right like what is this distracting from the fact that his numbers have totally plummeted after his handling of the Israel Gaza conflict right and the fact that he's potentially lost a whole swath of Gen Z voters who had voted him into office back in the last elections so I think this is another sort of addendum to what Dim has said is exactly that the domestic considerations of like projecting hey I'm doing good things for us in China and I'm sort of having a win is something that I think Joe Biden and his team are definitely thinking about.
0: The, po- the U.S. politics of that strategy aren't clear to me, though, because it's been the one bipartisan, routinely bipartisan thing in U.S. politics over the last couple of years has been, really since Trump got elected or just after, ha- has been, we've got to get hard on China. So I I, I know what you're saying, and I, but I just want... I, I've been watching Republic and we're not going to obviously talk about domestic politics in the U S too much, but I've been watching Republicans really try to create a wedge out of the China issue because it's a, a potentially powerful mm. weapon because China is one of the, you know, the biggest kind of conversations challenges that the U S faces. And one of the things that's been remarkable is that the U S Republicans and Democrats have almost been lockstep on it. I, I, the, the, the politics of, of Biden kind of cozying up to, to Xi aren't clear to me, but, and that brings me to to Dimitri's kind of remark there about calling him a a dictator back in June when he said that, when Biden called Xi a dictator, the Chinese media absolutely lost the plot in the way that they do the global, the global times, you know, screeched about how America was, you know, cold war mentality, all, all of that nonsense. Was that a classic Biden gaffe as judged by Antony Blinken's face when he made that remark and went like, oh my God. Or was it a, a clever political calculation to do exactly what we've just talked about, to kind of be like, hey, we are going to have the meeting, but by the way, Republicans don't try to pretend that I'm, you know, a panda hugger. Of, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, what, yeah, yeah. What, side of, what side of the fence do you guys come down on that?
2: I think it's both. I think that at this point, they're weaponizing Joe's sort of like slip ups as a way of kind of inserting messages that they can't say publicly. So I, I do think that that it's was probably tool, right? an intentional sort of theatrical ploy. What do you reckon, Jim? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think what options did he have? He gets that question Do you think Xi is a dictator? Anything short of yes raises the question So, were you wrong six months ago, or do you think China's a democracy now? But, but like, you cannot
0: answer that question. The Australian Prime Minister has given a ton of lines and, you know, like ways. I mean, he's a, he's a as you said, he's been in the Senate for 400 years. He can say, Yes, I do, without saying the words, yes, he is a dictator. He can say, look, he runs a very different situation, a different government to us. We have lots of differences. It's not how we run our government. I, I have had my disagreements in the past with Xi Jinping. Now's not the time to talk about it. There's lots of ways that he can be a politician.
1: I think he had that option the first time that question was asked in June. If, in, if the first time, six months ago, someone had thrown him that question and he'd given that answer, we wouldn't be in this situation now. But once you have said loud he is a dictator. I think any step short of that makes it sound like, firstly begs the question, what has changed? There would have, every hand in that press briefing room would have gone up and gone. So is your perception of Xi different now than it was before? Were you wrong before? Has something in this meeting? like, Or the inevitable question, was the cost of this meeting you tamping down rhetoric like that? I, I don't know. For me, I think, Maybe the first one was a gaffe. At this point, he's just got to be like,
2: he's got to stick with yeah. it.
1: <laughs> he's just got to be. He's just got to stick stick with it and try. Yeah, it doesn't um, really
2: matter though. At the end of the day, right? Because I think that the, the true colors of how the U.S. views China is so clear to everyone who's been watching that relationship. So it doesn't really matter how it's characterized. I, I think that the relationship is where it is now, um, which is very adversarial, and I don't see that being backtracked by one meeting.
0: Two last points on that one. I read somewhere. I don't know how true this is but that the questions he took, about four or five questions, not a lot of questions, were all pre-vetted by aides. So if that's true, the Biden is known for, like, letting press conferences go on longer than his aides would like, for sure. (laughs) So maybe this was an off-the-cuff kind of question that he decided to answer. But if that was vetted by aides, then, you know, that that kind of answers the question. And and I think the second thing is, Helen, I I agree that it doesn't matter in that, you know, my view is very clear. Obviously, Xi Jinping is a is a dictator in that sort of how we use that word. But what I worry that it does is it allows Xi Jinping internally back in China to go back and say, I went with open arms yeah, and said all, all these the nice right things. things. And I told you, you can't trust these snakes because right in my face while I was basically just barely out of the room, he goes and calls me a dictator
1: and then she turns around and orders four people in the room killed and i'm so upset by that i randomly execute five ministers
0: yeah well i mean i mean not out of the realms of possibility these days with the ministers falling yeah left right and center but yeah i did that, that would be my only my only remark about why it matters you know i think it's probably if i'm honest probably drawing a very long bow but never mind before before we wrap up here i want to where to from here dim like what do you think Does this mean, like Xi Jinping said, China and the U.S. should be friends? Is that going to happen?
1: I mean, I don't think they're going to be friends. I doubt they are even going to be friendly. I think we are going to return to a situation where, for a little while, the U.S. and China try to have basically technical-level collaboration on areas that aren't the hypersensitive, high-level conversations that don't really produce anything on the super sensitive questions, your kind of Taiwans, your PLA military buildup, all that kind of stuff. And having gotten over this meeting, we hopefully will normalize sort of meetings at a high level without the price needing to be paid for them by either side to be quite as high. And for a while, I think the relationship will continue, but there are some pretty big elephants in the room and Just, this meeting came nowhere near shooting them. So yeah, no one, yeah. Well,
2: I so. mean, again, I'm going to to be. I, I think this was a this was a good meeting. I don't think they're going to be friends, right? And I think there's going to be a lot of point flashpoints in the next even couple of months with the Taiwan election coming up, where we're going to see a lot more sort of exchange of words from both sides that kind of walk back all these niceties that have been exchanged in the last day or so. Um, but I do think that it sets, it's it's probably an indication of what uh, the US-China relationship will look like in the future, which is, I think, moving towards big multilateral conferences and sort of global agenda items like climate change, um, like sort of AI that will um, facilitate the two to, to speak and sort of do a photo op, shake hands and play nice. But fundamentally, you know, at the sort of bilateral level, the key red lines for both countries are still there. They won't be addressed and they likely won't be addressed in the coming administration either. But, but, you know, a a photo op is always, and, and the chats to talk is always better than not, going back to my sort of TLDR of how I view the world and diplomacy.
0: I think that's an excellent place to leave that conversation. But if being a diplomat is anything, guys, I think it's about the ability to have some small talk ready to go when you get stuck in an interminable conversation with someone who's literally boring the pants off you. And uh, if you haven't ever met someone who's boring the pants <laughs> off you, then you know the old maxim. Maybe the you're person. the problem. <laughs> exactly. So um, we're gonna we're gonna finish up with our our small talk section. Helen, what what topic are you gonna have ready to go in a room full of dull people to make sure you can get through the night?
2: I think for me this week. Because I've been in Cape Town in South Africa. I've, I've learned a couple of things. The, one, the first thing is that I learned that there's actually a twin to the famous animal in Australia called quokka. I don't know if you guys know what a quokka is. It's nice. that really cute animal that exists on Rottnest Island on the west coast of Australia, which is very, very, well, doesn't have any fear of predators because they have no natural predators on Rottnest Island. So they take selfies with people like Chris Hemsworth or anyone who sort of walks up to them and offers them some food. And they're super cute. Right. So I, I come to uh, to Cape Town the other day, went on a walk and saw something that looked like a quokka, but like really fat and big and probably more kind of like a Tasmanian devil. And it turns out they have an eagle twin called the Dussie in in Cape Town, uh, which are also very cute, but also have been known to more people's faces in the past. And so, of course, me being the person I am, sat down and tried to take a photo with this Dussie. Thankfully, it didn't maul my face, but it ran away. So there you go. That's one thing that you learn. Never never just assume that the, the wildlife of any country is what you uh, expect it to be. And the second thing is I'm really excited to to visit uh, this island called Robben Island, which is where you know Man- Mandela was famously imprisoned for uh, and excited. also is used that the to
0: word? Be- Is that the word you use?
2: Let me revise. Let me revise there. Looking forward, very very somberly looking forward, interest, interest. Yeah. intrigued, intrigued even. Yeah, there you via go. By a Robben Island, which is where you know Nelson Mandela and political prisoners during the apartheid have been locked up, uh, and also had used to be a, a leper colony. So there you go, going for the lepers.
0: Excellent, Dimitri, With your permission, I'll I'll give mine a second, and we'll we'll finish Please. up with yours. I for a while I have been aware of this archive, but I only just recently re stumbled upon it, and it's called the. David Rumsey historical map collection. Now, oh, I you would love have, that, John. Exactly. I'm, I've been long on record for anyone who knows me. I have a real obsession with maps. The older the better, the weirder the better, the more interesting the better. And anyway, this is a guy who began building a collection of North and South American kind of maps, historical cartographic materials. He did that back in, I want to say, don't quote me on this, but I think late 70s, early 80s. Mm. And eventually he's expanded this collection. To include maps of everywhere from all over the world, from all periods of history after humans started drawing maps. From kind of, well, I shouldn't say that. that's probably a little bit after we started, but from the 16th to the 20th centuries, he's just got, I think, something like 200,000 different maps.
2: Oh, that's so from, cool! Let's share the link in the show notes. That's very well, cool.
0: Absolutely, will because it's yes, yeah. you can lose hours, days, weeks. Can you, just can you
2: buy them from the website? I, I, I
0: believe you can buy prints. I can okay, buy, very you cool. You can buy prints, but for example. There's, you know, maps of Los Angeles from the early 40s that kind of look like some Egyptian hieroglyphic kind of deconstruction of the areas. There's, um, I've got another one up in front of me that is a historical map of Death Valley and it's kind of done in a cartoon way, but it's like done in a way that almost looks like a a video game quest map. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, and there's another one that kind of shows the heights of mountains as a graph and their low you know, all these kinds of really thoughtful, interesting ways of depicting, depicting. things mm-hmm. and depicting our physical world on maps. It's just fantastic. But I promise you you will lose if you like maps, you'll lose days to this place. But we'll put the show we'll put it in the show notes. And you can down you can download the prints too. So I mean, I think we've used one or two in our in our newsletter before. It's really cool. Um, So yes, I advise people to check that out. Dimitri, small talk. How are you making sure that um, people aren't tediously bored by you?
1: So, I mean, I've never succeeded in that in my life, but, (laughs) and one of the reasons why is I think when I would talk to people about this week, there has been a moral panic because seemingly fairly simultaneous, a not insignificant number of the youths on TikTok have discovered Osama Bin Laden's open letter to America, which is basically not his full manifesto, but basically his critique of US foreign policy. And TikTok teens, influencers and what have you, have been reading it and making TikToks where they basically go, this completely opened my eyes. I now, I've never look at this world the same way again. And listen, I mean... I I can't stress enough, you do not got to hand it to Bin Laden. This is not, I'm not encouraging anybody to read this thing. It is your usual kind of whiny garbage. But what I find really funny is that the reaction to this has been like, it is a three alarm fire. We have to shut down, not just TikTok, but I think just young people kind of immediately... kind of quarantine anybody under the age of about 58 uh, until we can figure out what's going on and i keep coming back to have you guys forgotten that saying controversial edgy stuff that makes your liberal wine mom and your slightly conservative stepdad be outraged is really common behavior for young people that has been going on non-stop In 2005, Immortal Technique and Most Deaf, who's now goes by Yasin Bey's actual name, put out a song called Bush Knock Down the Towers, which includes the Eminem lyric, I don't rap for dead presidents, I'd rather rap to make presidents dead. TikTok didn't invent teen rebellion, and TikTok did not invent putting Che Guevara on a t-shirt. And like, (laughs) yes, there's a conversation to be had about the dangers of TikTok and yada yada yada, and the but, and well, China, just, yeah, like China amplifying the algorithm and boosting that stuff. Right, yeah.
2: exactly, exactly, amplifying it, but dividing it. That's the... probably
0: a conversation for
1: another full episode. Next of the...
2: episode, but, <laughs> but my favorite. My point is
1: none, of, none of these kids are joining Al Qaeda. Is I guess what I wanted to kind of throw out there, and we should no, all that, take that's a, a couple great of one. Diem.
2: I just want to say one last thing, John, which is I want to I want all our readers to wish John a happy birthday. It's his birthday this Saturday, 18th November, no, no, why not cut point?
0: This is going the promos.
2: This is going the promos. Correct. Happy birthday, John. I don't want anyone to know
0: that I'm turning 30. I don't want anyone to know. God, you're literally just Ron Swanson. I know, uh, that wholly upsetting note. I have to cut this off before Helen starts to share other company secrets. Dimitri in Geneva in the evening. Thank you very much for this conversation. Fascinating. Helen in Cape Town. We really are in giving, I think, credence to our international part of our name. Um, thank you for joining us from South Africa.
2: Thank you, John. Thank you, Dim.
0: And and I'm in the US. Uh, we will be in your ears again next week. Thanks all. Thanks so much, everyone.
1: Thanks for listening to season two, episode two of Intrigue Explained. If you liked what you heard, please leave a rating and a review for the show on your favorite podcast app. To get more great content, subscribe to the International Intrigue newsletter and get the world in your inbox for free every morning.